Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome to Americans Watching the Footy, your number one stop for discussion about the NBA play-in tournament, where we discuss who's going to get their cheeks clapped by the number one seed, because there's two things we talk about on this podcast. It's the NBA and clapping cheeks. I guess you could draw a connection between that and the AFL, because the NBA play-in tournament sort of uses the old AFL final system, the Paige McIntyre system. So if you really want a connection, there you have it. I am Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. Note that you didn't come up with any connection for the clapping cheeks part, though, so. This is our round five preview. After the craziness of round four, this schedule looks just as interesting, if not more, considering the storylines that are continuing to build. It's an interesting round. There's no real, oh my god, drop everything and see this game, but every game has something to it. You could make a case that just about any of these nine matchups could be the most compelling of the round. And thankfully, if you really want to, and we do, you can see all these games live because there's no overlapping this round. And next round as well. Before we get into that, though, we've got some AFL news in general that we want to get into at least briefly. First off, CEO Gillen McLaughlin stepping down at the end of the season. McLaughlin has been AFL CEO since winter of 2014. It sounded like he may have actually wanted to step down a couple years ago, but decided to stay on to help steer the AFL through the COVID pandemic. And he's definitely received some appreciation for that. Overall, there's the general contempt around being the leader of a major sports league. I can definitely understand some of that considering some of the side effects of the measures taken against COVID, some of the complaints surrounding the keeping of the grand final at the MCG long-term as a potential disadvantage for non-Victorian clubs. But I wonder in that case how much his hand might have been forced by others because McLaughlin himself is from Adelaide. He also was the major force behind starting AFL Women's. I believe he actually announced that at a women's exhibition without really going to the board about it first. And I believe he also was the brain behind the ill-fated AFL acts. Ill-fated? Excuse me? How dare you? In fairness, I do think AFLX would be the most realistic way to get games to the United States just because we don't have fields of the proper size. But overall, we don't have the context comparing McLaughlin to other commissioners and such and other CEOs, considering that running a professional sports league in Australia is a completely different ballgame than running one in the United States. But you said that, yeah, there is usually a lot of criticism for commissioners of major sports leagues, and three of the four commissioners of major leagues 
in North America right now suck. The only one that might be decent is Adam Silver of the NBA. So it's a hard job. It's hard to keep people satisfied. And I'm just curious to see over time, as we gain more perspective and more context, how we end up evaluating Gillen McLaughlin compared to whoever his successor is. And there are a lot of names already being thrown into the mix for succeeding him, kind of in three categories within the league structure, from the club structure and outside. A lot of the names are people that I kind of expected considering what I know about the league structure, Andrew Dillon, executive general manager of football operations, Travis Ald, who is involved with finance and broadcasting. From club structure, the name that really stands out and the name that I'm most interested in seeing how it's going to be received in general, because I assume he would want to go for it, is Richmond CEO Brendan Gale. He was previously head of the Players Association, And then he was the one that had what seemed like such a crazy vision for the Tigers, not just to get their finances up to par and get their membership up, but to win three flags in 10 years and did it. Seen a couple other names from Clubland and outside, some talk around potential female CEO with candidates, including Bulldogs president Kylie Watson-Wheeler or Collingwood board member and former Australian Post CEO Christine Holgate. Again, this is very early on in the process, and at this point, it is kind of throwing names on the wall, like throwing pasta onto the fridge and seeing if it sticks. There's also increased talk of a nighttime grand final again. I'm kind of mixed on it. I like having it as a daytime event because then it's late in the evening in the United States to the point where bars are still open. You can actually go out to watch it. And if you're in an area with a good sized Australian community, it can be a lot of fun. Although having it later means I don't have to worry about any sort of other conflict and can just focus on the footy. So I see both sides to it from my personal selfish perspective. From the Australian side, it seems like it's more of a corporate movement to try to bring the game into nighttime. The fans seem very much in favor of it staying in its traditional Saturday afternoon time slot. It's kind of representative of the crossroads that a lot of sports are at right now. The struggle between satisfying corporate interests and sticking to tradition and satisfying the fans. The other major story involves the ongoing reckoning of the Collingwood Football Club. Harry Lumumba announced on Twitter that he and fellow former players Leon Davis and Andrew Krakauer have ended their talks with the club after 15 months. I quote from his Twitter, Nothing has changed. It is our firm belief that the Collingwood Football Club has no intention of acting in good faith to achieve a just outcome for past players who have experienced racism at the club. This comes, of course, in the aftermath of the Do Better report, which was released around the time they began their dialogue. Eddie McGuire resigning from the presidency after over two decades. My question now is, what exactly is the outcome that they're wanting? And who might they be able to turn to now if they want to continue that discussion at a league level or just a greater social level? I don't have much to say on this other than just bringing the facts, which is this is what they've said, but we felt like it's a relevant thing that needs to be discussed. It's been something that's been all over the footy world, even though we don't have the same exposure to Australian TV and news networks outside of what Watch AFL gives us. 
it's still something that's pretty noteworthy and has swept across the sport. So we felt it was relevant to at least mention it and provide an update on what's happening there. I'm also interested in how developments may occur surrounding a controversy that, who knows, could end up going in a similar direction around Hawthorne. That is in its very early stages, but Jeff Kennett has stood pat on his decision to stay in the club presidency until the previously arranged date of resignation, and we'll see what else comes from Hawks for Change, from Cyril Rioli Jr., from other players there. But we're going to go back toward Collingwood here as we begin our preview of the nine games of this round, because Collingwood feature in the Thursday night opener at the GABA, the Brisbane Lions hosting them. That bounce will be at 2.35 a.m. our time, Pacific Daylight Time, on Thursday the 14th in the United States. That's 5.35 a.m. Eastern. And local in Australia, it will be a 7.35 p.m. bounce. Brisbane coming in 3-1, and one, having lost to Geelong. Collingwood coming in at 500, at 2-2, two and two, after really letting both of their prior two games against Geelong and West Coast get away from them in the second half. When they met last year, they played twice. The matchup at the GABA was supposed to be in round three. They ended up flipping that around because of restrictions that were placed on Queensland at the time. It was a pretty crazy stretch for the Lions. They got to Geelong, found out that Queensland was going under lockdown, ended up basically staying in Victoria for an extra week and playing Collingwood at Marvel instead of at the GABA and one on Zach Bailey's goal after the siren. That game was also the Thursday before Easter, so going to be hard to be as good as that one. Hopefully we get a better game than the last time they played at the GABA, though. They played in round 22 and Brisbane won by 85. So hopefully we get a compelling, exciting game, though obviously Collingwood's got a lot to replace for this one. Big news for this one, in addition to Jamie Elliott missing time because of his AC joint, which could keep him out about three months, Jack Ginnivan's out because of soreness, which is pretty vague. That's as vague as when a hockey team says a player has a lower body injury. In fact, it's more vague. And Brody Majacek is in COVID protocols. And that's quite a blow to them considering what he was able to do near the end of the game against West Coast. Anyone who's able to make big plays like that, plays that aren't just flashy but are functional, is someone who's really valuable, and that's going to be a big spot for them to try to fill. However, Collingwood is getting Jordan DeGoey back, returning from his one-week suspension, and Taylor Adams is exiting COVID protocols. Nathan Kruger and Jordan Ruffhead are both to return from their shoulder injuries. Meanwhile, for Brisbane... Oscar McInerney will be returning from his suspension, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that ruck matchup between Big O and Brody Grundy. It was a younger gun for Brisbane and Zach Bailey that won that early season clash last year. We'll see what small forward Kyle Lohman, the 20th pick in this past year's draft, is able to do on debut for the Lions. The lists actually just came out for this Thursday nighter as we were recording confirming Loman's debut, as well as what we consider a surprise omission in Nakia Cockatoo. Then again, that may have been the plan all along for him to be the one that pays the price, and also maybe a consequence of him getting reported? I don't know, because he didn't get suspended or anything. Tom Fullerton, the former basketballer, because you always have to say that, also omitted for the Lions. But 
the bigger changes are for the pies in addition to what we already expected. As we mentioned, Roughhead back in, Adams back in, Dugowie back in, Kruger back in. Pleasantly surprised to see Mason Cox in there and shocked to see Ollie Henry left out of the team for this week. Yeah, it's such a hot start to the season, has cooled off a bit. Maybe it's that teams have been able to match up against him better, or maybe that he's just losing a bit of touch lately. I don't know, haven't seen a goal of the week nomination from him the past two rounds. John Noble also admitted the son of North Melbourne coach David Noble. As an American fan in particular, quite happy to see Mason Cox get another chance. Surprised to see just how tall this lineup is going to be between Mason being in, Kruger being in, Darcy Cameron still being in, I believe. Both these teams play really big up front. It's going to be interesting to see how the defenders on each side try to counter that. In terms of milestones, this game will be the 200th for a player on each side. For Brisbane, Lockie Neal. And for Collingwood, Jeremy Howe. This will be Howe's 100th game for Collingwood as well. He'll have evenly split games thus far in his career between Melbourne and Collingwood. And he honestly couldn't have more different players in terms of the eye test and just how flashy versus how quietly functional they are between the understated but ever-present Lockie Neal and the high-flying Jeremy Howe, who has already won Mark of the Year once and has the ability to do it pretty much every year. I'm curious to see how Collingwood try to handle the two guys who really stood out to me last week, Daniel McStay and Marcus Adams. Everyone knows Joe Danaher is going to be a problem every week. I think McStay was really quality last week in a game where the Lions largely got outplayed. And I thought Adams did a really nice job as that kind of back sweeper type who was just racking up the intercept marks. We'll find out pretty quickly if Collingwood choose to contort their game plan to handle those guys or if they kind of just play them straight up. If Collingwood are to be able to break through at the GABA, something that is hard for any opposing team to do is something that might be especially difficult for them considering the kind of back-breaking defeats they had late in the last couple of games and how demoralizing that could be in addition with the players who are out for them. They need another big game from that halfback group, and they're all plenty capable of it. Nick Dacos going from halfback through the middle is already doing so much as a first-year player. It's hard to believe that he's as young as he is with how fluid and how important he is to the Pies already. Scott Pendlebury has transitioned very well into that halfback role, and there's not enough to be said about Brayden Maynard when he can stay clean. Maynard against that forward group should be really fun. Brisbane favored by 28 and a half, which at first I thought was a bit of a high line, but then thinking that A, it's at the Gabba, and B, Collingwood's playing without both Elliott and Majacek, plus Ginevan, I think that's relatively fair. Plenty of potential for both teams to make good off clearances in this one, considering the Ruck matchup and what they still have going for them in the midfield. If you're a Lions fan, you're also hoping that Charlie Cameron is able to do more on his set shots or maybe just is willing to kick more in open play, considering that's where he's been able to be more successful up to this point. Yeah, he's been a bit quiet so far this year. I think he got one last week, but it wasn't exactly... He hasn't really had that dominant performance yet. Maybe some of that has to do with yielding to Joe Danaher, but... Still waiting on Charlie to really up his game to that level that we've seen out of him so many times before. 
my perspective on Cameron is colored by the opportunities that he missed in that round three thrashing of North Melbourne when he went 2-6 and 1-6 from set shots. And speaking of North, they feature in the first of two Friday night games. They're hosting the Bulldogs at Marvel Stadium in a game that could go any which way if last week's results for either team are to be of any indication. That will be at 11.20 p.m. Pacific on Thursday the 14th, early morning Friday east of that in the United States, so 2.20 a.m. Eastern, and it is a nice 4.20 p.m. start local time on Good Friday. It's hard to think of two more different 1-3 teams in terms of their trajectory thus far in this season and just what their fan base's opinion is of them getting to that record at this point. North coming in off an inspired effort in the close loss to Sydney last week. The Bulldogs have just been unable to kick straight at all, even in their one win over Sydney, which is, don't get me wrong, a darn good win. But they've underwhelmed so far. I don't know how much of this you could say is a grand final hangover. How much of it is just they're not able to kick straight. Is it that much to do with Josh Bruce's absence? Or what's at play here? Because it's getting to the point of being ridiculous. And Josh Bruce was the big star in their early season meeting last year at Marvel when the Bulldogs recorded their greatest ever winning margin in a VFL-AFL game, 128 points. Josh Bruce kicked 10 goals in that one. The Bulldogs also won their rematch last year in round 16, but by a much more modest margin of 29. They played just once this year. Going to be a few key players on watch. We don't know at the time of recording if they're going to be in the lineups. We do know that Cameron Zerhar is going to be out this round because of concussion protocols and that Jared Pollock underwent foot surgery and could be out up to six weeks. We know that the Bulldogs will be without Alex Keith and Latham Vandermeer. Anthony Scott is being monitored after migraine symptoms. Zane Cordy is back from concussion protocols. Mitch Cannon is a test, or I guess you would just label him as questionable, coming off of illness. Curious to see what the Bulldogs look like. I think, as we noted, they've got a really soft stretch of schedule coming up here where they could take advantage and get back into gear, not just facing North, but hosting the Crows after that, then taking on Essendon, and then... Port Adelaide, a matchup that sure sounded a lot more intimidating a few weeks ago. This is really time to right the ship or else it's time to start asking some serious questions about the Western Bulldogs. This is a pretty important opportunity for them to not just win, but look good doing it. And I'm less concerned about the margin for them as I am. Can they simply kick straight? If they kick straight and they win, regardless of how well they play in the rest of the field, it will answer a lot of concerns I have about them. It's game on for Aaron Naughton, and it's game on for Cody Waitman, both of whom really disappointed last week, especially the latter. I'm also waiting to see some really dominant play from Marcus Bonampelli and Tom Libertor, who have both been solid but not, you know, jump out of your seat amazing yet this year. And last year, they were both constantly jump out of your seat incredible. So waiting on that from them. Not that they've been bad this year, but... That's not the sort of play that got the Bulldogs to the grand final last year. Bulldogs favored by 33 and a half in this one. That's a line to me that seems a little large, not only considering the Bulldogs' inability to kick straight thus far this season, but also what North was able to accomplish 
last round and how David Noble has shown that he and his group have been able to adjust and bounce back from what can only be described as an extremely humiliating defeat just two rounds ago. Big focus for me up front is what Zeeble and Larky can do between them. Zeeble kicked five goals last game while Larky only managed a behind. I expect things to even out a bit more between them. And I want to see who the Bulldogs might match up against both of them there. Our second Good Friday game, this one will be on Friday pretty much all over the world. West Coast Eagles hosting the Sydney Swans at Optus Stadium. This one gets underway for those of us on the West Coast of the United States at 2.40 a.m. On the East Coast, 5.40 a.m. On the West Coast of Australia, where the game's actually being played, it'll get underway at 5.40. And on the East Coast, it'll be at 7.40. Eagles coming in at 1-3 after a win against Collingwood, about which I am still shocked. Collingwood really had a chance to grab the bull by the horns in the third quarter and did not, while the Eagles stayed steady and continued kicking accurately. Sydney were perhaps the least impressive of the victorious sides this past round as they ended up getting past North Melbourne by 11, thanks to some late heroics by Isaac Heaney. These teams met last year in Geelong after Sydney went under COVID restrictions. This was in round 16. It was the first game ever played at Cardinia Park, not involving the Cats, and it was an ugly one. Swans winning by 92, 118-26, the lowest score for the West Coast Eagles since 1992. Which, uh, which, oddly enough, was the year that they won their first flag. There was actually talk about that game in terms of maybe comparing it to Port Adelaide's difficulty scoring. I come into every Eagles game this season with no expectations, and I have even fewer expectations considering the combination of injuries and potential returns. The big one for the Eagles, of course, is that Nick Natanui is out with MCL damage until the second half of the season. Questions on Luke Edwards after his groin issue. He had similar issues last season. Oscar Allen is still one to two weeks away, having finally returned to training. But Luke Shuey is expected back. The captain was rested last week after a late exit of COVID protocols. And Tim Kelly, Sam Petresky-Seaton, Elliot Yo, and Jamie Cripps are all potentially available. Meanwhile, for the Swans, they're going to be without Buddy Franklin after he broke his finger. Tom Hickey continuing to nurse his MCL. And Tom Papley will be out for at least this round still with his hamstring issue. I'm looking to see if the Swans can get back to the dominant play they showed in their first two games with Patty McCartan dominating the back, Errol Golden doing his thing in the middle, and Heaney up front. And even without some key pieces, they have the personnel to do it. I think this will be a good bellwether for just what kind of team are they and what should their expectations be for the remainder of the season. Because first couple weeks... People were understandably in love with how they were playing. And the last couple of weeks, just they haven't shown that in really any aspect other than Heaney pulling some stuff out of his ass at the end of the last game against North Melbourne. Chance for a lot to happen for the Swans out of the ruck and through clearances because Pete Lattins and Sam Reed should have a pretty easy time with Hugh Dixon compared to the hit out beast that is 
Nick Nui. Of course, both teams with a lot of potential in the midfield, but at least we know what the Swans will have there as opposed to, well, the Eagles might have these pieces, and the Swans midfield is younger and really able to run, really like what I've seen from Braden Campbell these past couple rounds. We saw Chad Warner's ability to kick long for goal, Justin McInerney getting back to what we know he can be after some injury issues early on. Going toward the back lines, you can see a record in this game for intercept marks between Patty McCartan, Jeremy McGovern, and Shannon Hearn. Sydney favored by 10 and a half seems a bit low. I think the main factor bringing that line down is the length of the trip to Perth, which is never an easy one. Also, this series, which at times was a very heated rivalry, hopefully can be that once again, has had its share of close games. And with the backline prowess that both teams have, there's potential for this to be a lower scoring game. So I get the line being as low as it is. If it's a higher scoring affair, then that probably favors the Sydney Swans. There are three games on Holy Saturday beginning with St. Kilda and Gold Coast at Marvel Stadium, your afternoon time slot in the east of Australia, 1.45 p.m. local time. In the United States, that's 8.45 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 15th, 11.45 p.m. Eastern. Both these teams coming off wins where they showed what they can really be at their best. St. Kilda pouring it on Hawthorne, winning by a very nice margin and counterattacking extremely well. Brad Hill possibly having his best career game, not just in Saints colors. Meanwhile, the Suns, even with a quieter game from Matt Rowell, had a whole lot going for them from Noah Anderson, a VFL call-up in Malcolm Rosas, and their back line standing out to us for really the first time. These teams met once last year in round eight. That was... At Gold Coast, Suns had the lead most of the way, pissed it away late, lost by nine. This time around, St. Kilda's going to be a little bit shorthanded. First off, no Brett Ratton. He's in COVID protocol, so Brendan Lade is serving as the caretaker coach. Remember, teams with caretaker coaches are 4-0 so far. In terms of player ins and outs for the Saints, Patty Ryder's two-game suspension was upheld, dot, dot, dot. Complete fucking bullshit. You know, one of the things that we didn't really get into with our assessment of Gil McLaughlin's legacy was the match review board and the tribunal, and they fucked this one. They've blown a few, but this is really bad. Especially considering the similarities between it and the unpenalized Tim English bump. A couple options to replace Ryder and beat Rock Tandem with Rowan Marshall. We might see Jack Hayes reemerge after being omitted last week, or you may have Tom Campbell, who was VFL Player of the Week this past weekend. Also out for the Saints, Jimmy Webster entering protocols. That news came in as we were recording. Jack Billings and Hunter Clark are still one to two weeks away with their hamstring and shoulder injuries, respectively. However, Jack Higgins and Jaron Geary are exiting concussion protocol. So we could be back to at least three guys named Jack in the same kill the lineup. However, we won't have one Jack for the Suns because Jack Lacocious is out with a knee complaint. However, he might only miss this round. 
We'll see if Jai Farrer gets in. He'll be training this week. In terms of who comes in for the Suns, Caleb Graham, the young defender, is likely in for Jack Lacocious. And chances for Rory Atkins or Jeremy Sharp to get the other spot. Sadly, also for this game, you know, with St. Kilda and Gold Coast matching up, you always think of the King Twins. And of course, you're just going to have Max this time because of Ben's ACL injury that's keeping him out this whole year. Imagine what the Suns would be at full strength with him involved, too, with how much their forward additions have proven to pay off up to this point as well. I'm really interested to see how Gold Coast's defenders match up with the St. Kilda forwards. I was super impressed last week with Sam Collins, Will Powell, and most of all, Lockie Weller. So I'm excited to see what they do against the same kill to forward line that's really been firing on all cylinders the last couple of rounds. Let's hope that Brad Hill is able to play his same role again, because for some reason, Brett Ratton thinks, yeah, I might put him back at half back despite that. I really hope he was just saying that to try to throw opponents off. But I don't know if that's his thing, whereas Chris Scott says a lot of stuff to throw opponents off. Being deprived of that Patty Ryder, Jared Witts matchup is unfortunate because Witts absolutely dominated the center circle against Carlton last week. A lot of opportunity, as always, for the Suns to make good on their ruck and midfield prowess, especially if Matt Rowell has a more prominent game. Between him, Anderson, and Miller, there's so much potential for them. And we're really starting to see what they're able to do with a more formidable team around them, especially in terms of forward presence, even with Alex Sexton out. Last week was the first time Noah Anderson had really taken center stage in any game I had watched. I thought he was just phenomenal. Anderson and Raul, of course, have played together going back a while. They were drafted 1-2 from the Oakley Chargers in 2019, and I was really excited that Anderson really burst onto the scene in some respects in that contest last week. Here's to that continuing for them, because if that's the case, the Suns might actually have something. And that's something that's said pretty much every year about them. But considering their orderly results and not just their record, but how they were able to stick with Melbourne the whole way, it seems like they have a really high ceiling. But they've also got the low floor that's been typical of the Suns throughout their 12 year existence. St. Kilda favored by 19 and a half, which... I think is a reflection of the positive perception of the Saints after these three straight wins and a bit of a negative reflection on what people think about the Suns even after that win over Carlton. Before we continue, it's time for a little advertisement. To make a long story short, we wanted to monetize this podcast, try to do something with all of our efforts and get something out of the time we put into this other than just spreading the love of the sport. And to make a long story short, we did that through Anchor. And make a long story short, they give you a few options for some sponsorships. And long story short, we read those, aired a couple of them, we recorded them. And long story short, we're going to have you listen to one of those right now. If you're liking what you're hearing from us and want to keep up with our thoughts on the footy, we'd really appreciate it if you followed not just this podcast, but also our Twitter account where we post our thoughts throughout each round. That is at Americans Footy. We also have our personal Twitter accounts. I, Benjamin, am at BenjaminHK01. 
And I'm at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. That's Castle with the K. And Brian Harambe, who is currently sleeping on the bed next to me, is on Instagram at cat named Brian. So make a long story short. In order to find us, you go onto your browser, whether that be Microsoft Edge or Mozilla Firefox or Google Chrome or Safari. And long story short, you can either type in Twitter.com or put Twitter in the bar for your search engine, whether that's Google, Bing, Yahoo, or something else entirely. And make a long story short, once you get to Twitter, you should put in the names of each of our Twitter accounts that we just mentioned. And long story short, then just head onto the page and click the follow button. And make a long story short, we'd really appreciate if you interacted with us by liking our tweets, responding to our tweets, engaging with us, and long story short, we just saw we appreciate hearing what you have to say. We don't want to be in a bubble with this podcast. We're really glad that we've had some fans reaching out to us, talking to us about our thoughts, how they see the game compared to us, and we're looking forward to continuing to grow this. Continuing now with the second of the three games on Holy Saturday, we've got Adelaide hosting Richmond at the Adelaide Oval. That'll be in the very late hours of Friday the 15th for us here on the West Coast of the United States, 11.35 p.m. Pacific. That's 2.35 a.m. Eastern on Saturday the 16th. Local time in Adelaide for the bounce is 4.05 p.m., in the Eastern States, it'll be 4.35 p.m. Still can't get over the half-hour offset. That's just something we don't have in the United States. Adelaide enters at 1-3, but they played Essendon tough last week. Richmond enters this one at 2-2, two and two, having righted the ship with a big win over the Western Bulldogs. These teams met once last year, round 11 at the MCG. Tigers won that one by 28. I'm still having a hard time getting a read of just what Adelaide is. They've got a lot of raw talent across the Oval. I've been especially impressed with their young forwards, most notably, of course, round four rising star nominee Josh Rochelle. But Jimmy Rowe has also continued his progress and now adding the veteran presence and long kicking ability of Taylor Walker into the mix makes that group all the more formidable and perhaps easier to hate. As I said in our round four recap, I think they've got a lot of offensive firepower, but I don't think they have much to offer defensively, which would mean this could be a good chance for some of Richmond's forwards to really go off. Chance for high scoring in general. Chance for Shea Bolton to continue working his magic throughout the Oval. Chance for Jack Revolt to probably get on the end of a few set shots. He definitely had better form and seemed much more comfortable in the second half. And his next goal, I believe, will put him past his cousin Nick for his career. Looking at the injury report for the host Crows, Mitch Hinge is awaiting scan results on his swollen hip pointer, while Andrew McPherson had a setback in his Santa Fe assignment as he is recovering from his hamstring issue. After getting over his own hamstring injury, Nick Vlostone should make his season debut for the visiting Tigers, while Josh Caddy is a test after some soreness. Kane Lambert is on the way back, played a half of the VFL last weekend. I'd expect that he'd get a full game in with the reserves 
if not more, before rejoining the main outfit. I think this is a big opportunity for Matthew Parker, who's really broken out this year. Without much resistance defensively, I think this provides a great opportunity for him. Though Adelaide's still a really tough team to stop, so it'll be interesting how Richmond kind of deploys their defense. In the last few weeks, we've seen Nathan Broad rack up a lot of stats, a lot of quick, uncontested possessions. He and Jaden Short pair up for that. I don't know how much of an opportunity they'll have to do that, though, with how much they're going to have to do to stay on Adelaide's forwards. Because as we've seen, Adelaide's got some big-time goal-kicking ability, some guys who can pull down a lot of contested marks and make life difficult on teams with their presence in that forward 50. And I think their best path to success might be really upping the pressure and trying to stay in the forward 50 as much as possible. Because whether or not they're outnumbered, I don't think they have what it takes to cut it in their back 50. What would really help Adelaide to be able to stay in their forward 50 is if they have a better situation in terms of their second ruck. Riley O'Brien took pretty much everything this past round, and you could clearly see how fatigued he was by matches end going up against the Bombers tandem of Sam Draper and Andrew Phillips. Ethan and I agree, and we talked about it in the round four recap, that this is a great opportunity for Riley Philthorpe to make his return to AFL action. He's got a lot of ability in his forward role as well as in ruck relief. And as crowded as the forward group is for Adelaide, I think it's more than rational to get Philthorpe into this game. It's hard to go up against any AFL ruck for an entire contest, especially someone so physically imposing like Toby Nankervis. This is also a situation where the Crows could really look at just putting their best 22 out there instead of the best guys at each position, and accommodating Phil Thorpe would be a step towards that. Richmond favored by less than a goal, five and a half points at the time of recording, according to the line that we get from Bovada. A lot of this probably comes down to how difficult it is to play at the Adelaide Oval. And with how well the Crows were able to show on the road last week, having that home crowd in front of them might be able to put them over the edge against a side that top to bottom probably has more to offer than the Bombers. I would still lean Richmond on this one, even though I don't question the Crows at home. I do question their defense. Unless Richmond just can't kick straight. I don't think the Crows are going to be able to necessarily outscore them. Moving on to the Saturday night finale, Melbourne hosting GWS at the MCG. The Demons, the last undefeated team in the competition. This one will get underway Saturday across the board, 2.25 a.m. on the West Coast of the United States, 5.25 a.m. on the East Coast and in the eastern states of Australia at 7.25 p.m. As we said, Demons are undefeated. They're 4-0. Giants 1-3 coming in off of a loss to Fremantle where they hung around until the fourth quarter, but I didn't think played all that well. Way to disrespect our Hawaiian listeners. It's still going to be Friday there. I can never remember when they're three hours off and when they're two hours off, but if we have any Hawaiian listeners that feel disrespected, speak up. If you're listening from anywhere interesting, let us know, because we like learning where our listeners are checking in from. Melbourne and Greater Western Sydney played twice last season with with the road team, taking the four points back home with them both times. In round three, outside Canberra at the Mountica Oval, Greater Western Sydney kicked accurately, but Melbourne had 
far more opportunities and won by 34 points. Then in round 16 at the G in a really shocking result, both teams had trouble kicking straight, but Melbourne more so and the Giants took four points. Well, not back to New South Wales considering the protocols, but they took the four points away from the G. Looking at the rosters for this week, the biggest issue for GWS is going to be their week in the rock to begin with without Braden Proust. After he elbowed David Mundy in the head, they'll have Matt Flynn back, but who's the second rock? And is Flynn even going to be able to hold his own against that combination of Gone and Jackson, who are so much more than just good at winning hitouts? Whereas I remember you pointed out when the Giants opened the season with the Sydney Derby that Flynn was really good at winning the hitouts, but not much else. So this could be something that the Demons really exploit. Looking elsewhere in the Giants report, Lockie Whitfield should play, had some soreness in his knee, but appears to be good to go per Leon Cameron. Nick Haynes is a test, needs to get through training after his ankle complaint. There's a chance that Finn Callahan may make his debut for Greater Western Sydney, the third pick in this past year's draft. Looking at Melbourne, likely to have few changes, if any, there. Joel Smith will be back out of protocols, but Sam Wiedemann will get another week despite underwhelming at Port Adelaide because Ben Brown was suspended for an intentional elbow. Somehow, I think he's only getting a week for that with a guilty plea. I guess remorse goes a long way. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that he's woke. I don't know. But it seems silly that the league's priorities seem to be on suspending guys for hard hits that just come up in the natural run of play versus totally unnecessary cheap shots that have nothing to do with the actual action on the field completely away from the ball. I don't understand why this has become the hill they've chosen to die on. I don't get it. I don't like it. I like Ben Brown, but he should be suspended much longer for that. It was a really dirty hit. It had nothing to do with the play and that he's getting off so easy. I think it sends a bad message all around the league. I wonder how much of it has to do with his lack of suspension history compared to someone like, I don't know, Toby Green, who is still suspended for one more round after his altercation with an umpire in last year's finals. I'm also wondering what could have prompted Ben Brown to do that because he's usually such a nice guy. I'm wondering maybe the guy he elbowed was making fun of him being vegan, told him that impossible burgers suck or something. I don't know. There are so many ways you could go with this, and I'm just going to leave it up to the imagination, but I'm going to pretend, unless told otherwise, that he elbowed the guy because he told him, hey, impossible burgers taste like shit. The only plant-based meat I can support is the Tegrity Burger. Tastes like shit. You won't care. There's also some late-breaking news now that Christian Petraka may be in doubt for this contest after an apparent left knee issue in training. He ended up on ice after the session. Before that news came in, Melbourne was favored by 31 and a half points. And I'd be inclined to go a little over on this one. If anything, five goals is a pretty big line. But I just expect them to be able to dominate the ruck and be able to do good from there with just how deep they are in the midfield and throughout their lineup. Last week was a great example of what they can do even when their stars are not having the biggest impact. 
Willem Drew tagged Petraka well last round, and I assume Lockie Ash would tag him if he plays on Saturday, or if he doesn't, then Ash may go to Clayton Oliver, who also wasn't that impactful last week, but that didn't matter. The D's still more than got the job done, and they silenced the Adelaide Oval, something I'd never heard before in the home away season. In order for GWS to win this game, they're going to have to overcome likely a massive deficit in the hitouts and clearances, which could be done if Taranto and Canelio can force some turnovers. I'm also looking for Callan Ward to be way better than last week because he directly allowed a couple of easy Fremantle goals off really bad turnovers. Likewise, looking for Harry Himmelberg to be able to piece together four good quarters in a row in the forward half, and for Bobby Hill to be more than he was. He was invisible against Fremantle. Dang it, Bobby. Hell, it may take him getting the mark of the year off Max Gaughan to inspire the Giants enough, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, and he's plenty capable of getting that height. Moving on to Easter Sunday, just two games since we've also got an Easter Monday clash, spoiler alert. So the first one on Sunday, it'll be a quick turnaround back to the MCG. So hopefully the field's in good condition for Carlton to host Port Adelaide. This one, all across the United States, it'll still be Saturday night, 8, 10 p.m. on the West Coast, 11, 10 on the East Coast. Within Australia, local time, 1, 10 p.m. And for the Port Adelaide fans back in South Australia, it'll get underway at 1240. Both teams coming off deflating losses last week, kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum and the latter in terms of what that does to their morale between how high it was for Carlton and how low it was already for Port. Carlton losing by 30 at Gold Coast when they had a big Blues contingent there for that. Port Adelaide seeing a Melbourne onslaught in the second quarter and seemingly not caring from there. I honestly hope Zach Butters gets omitted after his embarrassment at the end of the first half. It wasn't so much the foul itself. It was the body language after. That said, if Port Adelaide were looking to get a break their way, they won't be facing Patrick Cripps, though he did get good news. No significant damage to his hamstring. Maybe he only ends up missing this round. Of course, Port Adelaide can't catch a break either because Ollie Wines is out after it turned out it was a heart issue that was the cause of his nausea last round, was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, a heart condition that is not unknown by any means to top athletes. He's been cleared to resume light training, no timetable on his return to game action, though. In terms of other injury issues for the Blues, they should get their four Back from COVID protocols, those being Jack Carroll, Corey Durden, Jesse Motloff, and Tom Williamson. Very importantly, Mark Pittnett and Oscar McDonald are likely available after back injuries kept them out last round. Having Pittnett back would be particularly important, especially when Scott Lysette is in doubt for the power after dislocating his shoulder. A chance for the Blues to really turn around their fortunes in the ruck compared to last week. Additionally, for Port, Xavier Dersma will be a decision later in the week looking at his neck and shoulder issues. And the status of Trent McKenzie, who cannot catch a break, is to be seen after some arthroscopic work on his knee. He's likely out this round, if not longer. Though Robbie Gray is out of protocol and is no longer on the injury list, seems like his knee has healed 
And Sam Skinner is also not on the list after his ankle complaint. There's one really big shock, though, in terms of who might be available for the power, Ethan. Alir Alir appears ahead of schedule in his syndesmosis recovery because he's listed as a test. Now, I don't know if that's with any expectation of him being able to play, but that is a huge, huge boost for a Port Adelaide team that desperately needs it. These teams met twice last year. They meet just once this year. By the way, all nine matchups this round are pairings that only play once this year. So even though it's pretty early in the season, you see a lot of matchups that end up repeating later on. No such situation in this round. When they met last year, Carlton hosted in round five at the MCG, just like they do this year. Port Adelaide took that one by 28. And then Port Adelaide won again in round 22 by 95. Obviously, fortunes have changed since then. And the Blues are favored entering this one. But by only 10 and a half, I guess that's the Patrick Cripps effect. I was also very surprised to see the line that low. That definitely speaks more to the impact Patrick Cripps has rather than, oh, wait, Port Adelaide might actually have a chance because of something on their own. We've also been pretty much shitting on Port Adelaide nonstop for the past week. You know, after that loss to the Crows, it looked like, all right, there are some building blocks. This is a tough one to stomach, but there are signs of progress. Mitch Georgiatis looks ready to go. And then they just shit the bed last week. Also, have you heard anything about Jeremy Finlayson for this week? Because he kicked six in the VFL last week. That seems to be a pretty compelling case to have him back out there. It's pretty early at this point still to talk about naming teams for this round for Easter Sunday, but I would expect he'd be in. I think it would be a real missed opportunity from the coaching staff and list management to not include him after he responded to his omission very well. Considering that they showed positive signs against the Crows, despite losing in such heartbreaking fashion, is there a way this game could be successful for Port Adelaide in any scenario in which they don't win? Or is it at the point where they have to win or else there's just no hope? I honestly think that last round did enough to sink them for this season. I think just getting back to more familiar patterns of attack, getting more reliable results all over the ground, especially if Robbie Gray is back in the midfield. I think that might be enough for this to be considered a success. As weird as it is to think that the Port Faithful are already looking ahead to 2023, I think that is what they kind of have to be doing at this point. I also think another lousy performance could really, really put some fire under Ken Hinckley, who... Every week has had fans questioning his competence. I think this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back if things go poorly. I'm just wondering now how much injury questions might be able to save him for another week, or if at this point any defeat by a significant enough margin might do the job. I'm fearing for the worst for the power and for their coaching staff if Scott Lysette is out because Mark Pittnett against Todd Marshall is more than a mismatch. Moving on to the back end of the Easter Sunday doubleheader, it's a matchup that we personally always enjoy because it's the very first footy game we ever watched, Essendon hosting Fremantle at Marvel Stadium. This one gets underway 20 minutes before Saturday turns into Sunday on the West Coast of the United States, so 11.40 p.m. on April 16th. 
on the East Coast, 2.40 a.m. on April 17th at Marvel Stadium. It'll be 4.40 p.m. local time. And for Frio fans watching from Western Australia, 2.40 p.m. Essendon coming in at 1-3 and three after getting their first win of the season last week at Marvel in a nail-biter against the Crows. Fremantle had an easier time, I'd say, with Greater Western Sydney, despite not having a big scoreboard advantage until later on. I think they were the better team throughout that contest. These teams played once last year. It was at Marvel Stadium. In fact, these teams have not played outside Melbourne since the late goings of the 2019 season. In round nine last year, Essendon beat Fremantle by seven. And speaking of that first game we ever watched, that was round one, 2020 at an empty MCG when Essendon won by just six. So these past few years, this has been a pretty close matchup. And here's to that continuing, because despite the injury concerns for Essendon, I think they could really build off what they did last week. This is such an interesting matchup to me from a tactical standpoint. Essendon last week, my biggest takeaway was that their defenders, especially Hind and Redmond, are really good when they play up and create offense, but I wasn't impressed with their actual defending. Whereas Fremantle, I was still waiting to see, okay, what's their identity? Because they're not a great team from set shots, but they can earn a lot of set shots when they put on a lot of pressure up front. But they're also a team that can utilize the speed and play from the back 50 and play through and take that and get on a run. So what sort of identity is Fremantle going to gravitate towards this week? It was looking like Fremantle would be back to full health aside from their captain, Nat Fife. But it's now broken that Lockie Schultz is in COVID protocols, and that's a substantial loss up front. He's already got six goals on the season, trailing Rory Lobb for the club lead by just one and he won the Glendinning Allen medal as best on ground in Western Derby 54. Other than Schultz and Fife, though, the prognoses do look good. Alex Pierce is available after getting over his ankle injury that he suffered in the Western Derby. Caleb Sarong should be available, having not played since round two. And Darcy Tucker will be out of concussion protocol. It's really a list crunch for the Dockers, considering... Neil Rasmus and Nathan O'Driscoll have both done well in their first two AFL games, and omitting any one player at this point is going to be pretty difficult for Fremantle. I think they've got to keep O'Driscoll in there. He really stood out to me last week. I think we could see some surprising outs here instead. Not sure what direction they choose to go in with this, but that'll be one to follow closely. They'll also, Fremantle will also have Justin Longbeard back well, after Jamie Graham got two wins as a caretaker coach. Essendon will also have Ben Rutten back, so at full strength in the coaching box. However, Essendon will not be at full strength at all on the field, considering Jake Stringer is out for a second straight week nursing his hamstring. Will Snelling's calf complaint has recurred, and James Stewart's calf injury will keep him out for several weeks. Looks like they should be getting Nick Cox back, though, from his ankle. Tom Cutler should also be available. We'll see about Aaron Francis. He's been a test now the past couple weeks with his knee issue. In terms of looking further down the injury timeline, Harry Jones is likely to see VFL action as he comes back from his ankle injury and no clear sign of what Anthony McDonald's and Woody will be doing. Hope to see him back soon.
Essendon favored by one and a half, considering Fremantle's longstanding struggles, not just on the road against the Bombers, but in Victoria altogether. Interesting note, this is the first time Fremantle will have played in Victoria this year. Three of their first four games were in Perth, two home games in Western Derby, in which the Eagles were the home team. Their only trip outside of Western Australia so far was to Adelaide. I still like Fremantle in this matchup. I would take Fremantle to win straight up. I think they're better defensively. I just think they need to get out of their own way by figuring out a clear identity and game plan. I think tactically, again, this is going to be a super fun game to study. Especially considering both head coaches are going to be back. We talked in our round four recap about how with technology being what it is, it's likely that the coaches still had had their hands in pretty much all aspects of the game plan. But whether or not there on the day, there are definitely some differences. And I wonder if we are going to be able to spot any differences between head coach and caretaker coach style for both teams when we recap this one at round's end. Without doing this podcast and needing to analyze things closely, I don't think I'd have followed the Dockers to this extent. So this has been a lot of fun, and I'm just thankful to be able to appreciate and analyze them more because they weren't a team I ever gave much thought to the last couple years. They just kind of were a middling team with a somewhat lame fight song, and I'm glad to have had reason to pay attention to them this year, isolating them as a team that could really break out, and so far seeing them play these two contrasting styles. Round five ends with the traditional Easter Monday meeting between Hawthorne and Geelong. Only time they meet this year, that's the theme throughout this round. This one will be Sunday night on the West Coast of the United States, 10.20 p.m., Monday very early on the East Coast of the United States, 1.20 in the morning, and actual local time at the MCG where it's played, 3.20 in the afternoon. Hawthorne 2-2 two two, coming off back-to-back losses. The Cats have won two in a row and now sit at 3-1. and one. These teams only played once last year as well, which surprises me. In that Easter Monday clash, Geelong nearly blew a 30-point lead but managed to hold on by five. This will be Brandon Parfit's 100th AFL game. Congratulations to him. Surprised he's already played that much, but he's a player that I know you've been focused on a lot in your analysis of the Cats thus far. When he and Tom Stewart were injured last year, it really showed. Speaking of Stewart, he should be back this week from what they list as gastro. Basically, he had the shifts and was maybe also throwing up. Joel Selwood should be back after being managed last week. The Cats are getting a lot healthier altogether with Sean Higgins and Sam Manigola going through concussion protocols. Esava Radagalea on his way back from his ankle injury. Although, as I've said, I think they're better off without Higgins. Quinton Narkel will be out. He avoided fracturing his ankle. He does not have syndesmosis, but he is going to be out this week. Glad it's not a long-term injury for him. For Hawthorne, Will Day is out after being concussed by Patty Ryder. Or really, he was concussed by the whiplash from colliding with Patty Ryder. And you can't suspend whiplash. It's just like... When someone crashes their car, they didn't crash because they were going too fast. They crashed because they came to a sudden stop. It's not the fall that kills you. It's suddenly not falling that kills you. Additionally, Chad Wingard is waiting on a scan. 
he may be able to come back from a calf injury that kept him out last round. Max Lynch's return is dependent on his exit from concussion protocols, and there's a chance for Jacob Kaczynski to come back. He did have an eye injury in the VFL, but there's no lasting damage from that. So a lot of questions on both sides in terms of who's actually going to be in for this one. And that makes it a bit tougher for us to go into deeper analysis. Overall, though, I'm looking for Hawthorne to be able to create more opportunities themselves and also for them to just not bleed points when teams are counterattacking against them. Again, I was so surprised last round when they had their difficulties against St. Kilda considering how much they do counterattacking themselves. You'd think that a team that is so proficient in that way offensively can play against that kind of offense well, but that clearly was not the case last round. And it doesn't get any easier when you're facing a team that can break out quickly through Brad Close. The other thing that appeals to me matchup-wise is trying to see how the Cats combat CJ. I thought St. Kilda did a really good job on him. And it'll be fun to watch how he kind of matches up with Tom Hawkins, Jeremy Cameron, and the rest. Wondering if Cam Guthrie might come forward a bit more and in that way might be ready to take CJ to ground. One article I saw suggested that James Warple could be omitted this week. Hopefully he's not because I would love to see a matchup between Warple and his lifelong friend, Brian Myers. Warple was far from his best last week, only a few touches and was caught a few times. So that's not a huge shock to me. But it is good to see that Sam Mitchell has everyone on a short leash, considering their results the past couple of rounds, especially last round. I've been very impressed with his coaching so far and his ability to make quick adjustments. That didn't happen last week, but now they've got a full week plus an extra day to really figure things out. So what sort of game plan they come out with will be really compelling to watch, I think. Meanwhile, is Chris Scott going to stick with what works for the Cats or will he make unnecessary changes again? See, what's so interesting here is there might actually be reason to do that since Hawthorne's such a good counterattacking team and you want to prevent them from getting in said counterattacks. But you feel better about your chances to stop counterattacks when you've got Tom Stewart manning the back. Geelong are favored by 16 and a half. Ethan, you're the Cats fan here. And even though I was the one that paid more attention to Hawthorne last week, I really want your thoughts on this line. I think it's really appropriate, actually. That's about where I'd peg things. I think Geelong are clearly the better team. I think they're not just better. I think they're one of the best teams in the whole competition. And so far this year, they've been able to refute a lot of those aging concerns because a lot of their better players have been some of the younger ones. But this also respects Hawthorne, who have been off to a nice start and have already exceeded some expectations this year in terms of the style they've played, the identity they've embraced, and their ability to adapt on the fly, although they obviously had no answer for St. Kilda last week. Looking for Jack Gunston to be looking for Jack Gunston to be something this round if they are to stand any chance, and for Mitch Lewis to be more accurate early on because he definitely got into form later in the contest and took a huge mark. Wouldn't be shocked to see him fly over the likes of Reese Stanley or Mark Blitzoffs. I'm wondering, who does Mark O'Connor tag? Because he's kind of the designated tagger, and last week was his first game of the season. 
Hawthorne's got a few quality forwards that they can choose to deploy him on. Especially if Chad Wingard is in. Another matchup that'll be fun to see from the coaching standpoint, and it's a disappointment that they're not going to play again, because you'd love to see what do they throw at each other the first time? How do they size the opposition up? And then in turn, how do they respond to that and adjust for the second go around? So that's the full slate for this Easter week round having been preceded by some news about the state of the league overall, a whole lot to think about on all fronts in the AFL. What, Ethan, do you have one big takeaway or one big thing in general that you're hoping to see this weekend? Other than Brian Myers scoring 10 goals, because I'm hoping to see that every week, my biggest thing is that you could really make an argument for any of these nine games being the best one this round. And I think that's really fun. Although I don't think there's going to be too many people arguing for the Bulldogs against North. I don't know if we're going to see such a balanced list of games all year long again. Although Brisbane Collingwood might stand out a little more if the Pies had a couple of their key pieces. Still, you could, again, make an argument for any of these nine games as the best game to watch over this coming week. That's why I'm particularly thankful that there are no overlaps this round. I have absolutely no idea what the margins will end up being for this one, but I wouldn't be shocked if if this, on average, was the closest round thus far this season. And I would not be shocked at all to see North Melbourne actually get over the Bulldogs. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I don't think really any team can be counted out of winning this week. I don't know if there's going to be a single down-to-the-wire game, but it seems like every game just about could be in that two-goal range where it's still very much up for grabs with five minutes to go, even if you don't have you know a memorable come-down-to-the-final-possession sort of finish. Our eyes will be glued to, well, our computers, because that's how we stream AFL, and we'll be giving our thoughts throughout the round at Americans Footy on Twitter. Again, follow us there in addition to following this podcast to get our continued insight as we continue to learn more about this game and as we just embrace AFL in the moment. I might give some thoughts on the West Coast Eagles as well on my personal Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find me talking about the Cats, baseball, everything else on my personal page, Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. And you can find my cat, Brian Harambe, on Instagram, at cat named Brian. You can also find him at this exact moment, sleeping on the bed. And speaking of sleeping, that's what I'm going to be doing very soon as well, because it's been a long day for me, and I want to make sure I'm rested up not just to edit this podcast, but to also enjoy this round in full. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will have our round five recap to you, hopefully by Australian Tuesday night. Happy Passover, Todd Goldstein. Kaksamea. <laughs> <laughs>